Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Eric Davidson will join us to discuss science for a green new deal. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the changes to the global environment require changes in climate policy, economics, social justice. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Eric Davidson. Dr. Davidson is professor of the Apple at the Appalachian Laboratory at the University of Maryland Center for the Environmental Sciences in Frostburg, Maryland. Dr. Davidson is an ecologist, soil scientist, and biogeochemist whose research career has focused on how human change to the land affect carbon and nitrogen in soil, water, and air. He has penned the new book, Science for a Green New Deal, Connecting Climate, Economics, and Social Justice. Dr. Davidson, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. Well, changes to the global environment requiring a lot of changes in different areas. Discuss a number of these in your book. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Well, recently I've sensed an understandable growing feeling almost of doom among a lot of young people that governments just aren't taking the climate science or climate challenge seriously enough. And, you know, I have to admit, those people are right. We just aren't moving fast enough on that particular issue and on a lot of other issues. But I wrote this book to try to describe how we have more powerful science, technology, economics, social science to solve this problem than we've ever had before. We've lacked the political will to do what needs to be done, but I'm optimistic about that too, that it will change. I've witnessed major changes over the last 40 or 50 years of Things like, uh, if you'd ask me as a young adult, if I would live to see the time that smoking is so rare as it is today, or that same-sex marriage would be the law of the land, I would have said no way. And of course, we can't take those things for granted. For instance, vaping has become more popular, and recent Supreme Court decisions question whether the rights that we thought were permanent really are. But put that aside, looking at how much progress has been made in so many ways that I'm actually quite optimistic that we will find the combination of technology, science, social science, economics, so that we can do the right thing when it comes to dealing with climate change issues and other issues. So there are two main points in this book. First, as I said, I want to instill a sense of hope and chase away what seems like that sense of doom regarding climate change and also wealth disparity and social injustices. I think the younger generations have a right to be gravely disappointed with the inadequate response in each of those issues. Although all of us are experiencing climate change now, every generation, every rich and poor people, it's really the Gen Zers who 
have a full lifetime to look ahead and live under the burden of the results of the inactions that my generation, the boomer generation, will be leaving them. And frankly, it's my generation that still has overall control of Congress and many other decision-making institutions. So I understand why many of them are feeling a growing sense of doom. But I really believe that the momentum can change and that especially with all the efforts that I've seen of young people demanding change, that I think we can get to that transformational change. The second point about the book is to connect the dots between the environment, the economy, and social justice. We can't just go on siloing those things and say, well, One day we're going to deal with economic issues and another day we're going to deal with environmental issues and another day with social justice issues, or that this one's my highest priority and the other two are less important. We really aren't going to solve any of them without solving all three. And at first that may make it sound like a more difficult job, but on the other hand, the solutions to each of those are mutually supportive. So just to give an example, reducing air pollution, particularly the fine particulate matter, the the things we call NOx or ozone that have immediate respiratory impacts, will help everybody, but they will especially help kids growing up in low-income communities where the pollution happens to be the worst because of proximity to roads and factories. And that, in turn, would make those communities stronger, give those kids a better chance of realizing their dreams and thus contributing to the country and its economy in many ways. So connecting these dots to show how a healthy environment will reap economic benefits and justice rewards is what this book is about and also has to do with the name, Science for a Green New Deal. That's really what the Green New Deal was all about. It seems as though a lot of the lack of progress in the area of climate change has been not all these issues together. If you don't have the economic incentives for promoting clean energy technologies, all these fall by the wayside if they're not dealt with correctly. Do you think the infrastructure is now in place where we are in a position to address all these things simultaneously? Well, we are in the position to do that, but I won't sugarcoat it. There's still some impediments. We haven't gotten the message across clearly enough. For instance, take the current issue about inflation. Many, many people are worried about inflation, as they should be. It's really an important issue. But actually, moving towards cleaner energy in many ways will be deflationary, not inflationary. As we make the cost of electricity lower, As people move to electric vehicles, which have a higher initial purchase cost, but a lower operating cost that will save them money over the long term. Many of these renewable energy technologies actually are the hottest job creators at the moment. And so unfortunately, that message isn't getting through clearly enough that these sorts of investments will enable us to achieve a stronger, more sustainable and independent economic prosperity. Why are we so affected by the Ukraine war? It's in large part because we're dependent on fossil fuels. If we weren't so dependent on fossil fuels, the threat of Russia to stop shipping fossil fuels to Europe and the desire of the Europeans to not want to import them wouldn't be so much of a big deal. And we wouldn't be at the risk of supporting this petro tyrant in Russia. The quicker we can move away from those sorts of dependencies, the better we are off in terms of national security. So 
let's connect all those dots between national security, economic prosperity, social justice, and appropriate protection of the environment. As you mentioned, there are a lot of exciting technologies, a lot of innovations driven by science. Of these, what do you think are the most salient technologies to really make an impact? Right. I do spend a chapter in the book looking at the technologies that we need to be adopting in the short term and in the long term. In the next 5 to 10 to 15 years, we really need to electrify. So every type of part of our sector that we can run off of electricity instead of off of gas and coal and oil, we should be doing so. And so that includes moving towards electric vehicles to the greatest extent possible. That technology is already here. We need lower prices at the lower end of the market of, for automobiles for more people to be able to participate in that. But that's going to be coming. And we need to make sure people don't have range anxiety, that they get used to the notion. And actually, once they start driving an electric car, they'll realize how much fun it is. I mean, electric cars have a lot of torque, a lot of pickup, and they're fun to drive. But that's just one example. Another is to electrify our heating and cooling system. And that's with this thing called a heat pump. It's an unfortunate name because it sounds like it's only for heating, but it's actually for cooling as well. And so all new constructions and all retrofits of old buildings and old houses, when, when you're upgrading your heating system or your cooling system, it really ought to be a modern heat pump. And that saves you money, a lot of money in the long run. So these are some of the technologies that we already have in hand and we know that need to be adopted as quickly as possible. Of course, if you're switching to electricity, then you better be generating the electricity as sustainably as possible. And the cost of wind and solar have come down so that they are actually more competitive with, say, a new coal-fired plant. And so coal is declining in the U.S. not because there's a war on coal or that one political party or the other is out to get coal. It's, it's really market-driven. First, it was the mechanization of coal mining that did away with a lot of coal mining jobs. But then it was the development of fracking for getting gas that made that cheaper. And now renewables are coming along and being even cheaper still. So we have these technologies. And of course, there's some things that need to be worked out. Um, they rely on, those technologies rely on some critical minerals like lithium and cobalt. And we have to figure out how to get those in a sustainable way. Those mines tend to pollute a lot. So there are some challenges ahead. But we are developing the technology. In most cases, we have the technology to meet those challenges. Now, if you want to look further down the road, there's some sectors of our economy that are going to be more difficult to electrify. So like making steel, for example. There's a couple of countries that are doing it with green technology, with renewable sources of electricity to make the steel. But it's still not economically viable to scale up. Aviation is another one. There are some short-term flights that can be taken on airplanes with batteries, but really the long-range flights are going to have to have aviation fuel that comes from more renewable sources. And there's a little bit of that happening now with capturing, reusing things like biofuels, waste grease, and things like that. But there needs to be more technological development for the long-term. Cement's another one. But those are coming along. 
And I can imagine that by the time we get to 2050, we will have solutions for those technologies as well. But the most important thing is to not lose the momentum we have now so that we can make a lot of progress between now and 2030 and 2040. As you put in the book, addressing inequalities in which groups have been impacted by energy technologies, how do you see that then addressing some of these social justice issues? Well, first of all, let's look at the impacts of climate change. Look at the the heat wave that's hitting most of the U.S. and much of Europe and other parts of the world right now. Where is it the hottest? It's the hottest downtown, right, where there's a lot of asphalt and steel and not many trees. And that's where a lot of low-income communities are. And so we know that those people are suffering more from these heat waves than those of us that are privileged enough to live in suburbs that are covered with trees and have shady places to go and get relief or stay in our air conditioning, which we're confident is going to keep working. Whereas communities that just don't have that ability to adapt are the ones that suffer the most. That's in the U.S. And then we look abroad in how smallholder farmers in Africa, Asia, South America don't have the resources to be able to adapt to provide more irrigation if they need more irrigation or a new type of seed for plants that are better adapted to a drier or hotter climate. So The ability to adapt to climate change is really sensitive to economic status, which often correlates with ethnic and and racial considerations. But then also we look at other things besides, you know, the impacts, direct impacts of climate change. Where are the refineries? Where are most of the power plants that are belching out um, particulate matter? And who lives nearby them? In many cases, it's rural low-income groups. So previously I was talking about the urban low-income groups, but in many rural areas, they're the ones that live by the refineries and the power plants. And so they're the ones that are most exposed to the emissions from those. So again, figuring out how to connect those dots and recognizing that the solutions kind of come together, that if we want to deal with the social justice issues, we need to deal with the sources of of the pollution. And in the process of dealing with the sources of pollution, we see that we also find solutions to climate change. As you mentioned, certainly a global issue where other countries are doing their part. How do you think the U.S. is comparing? Are there lessons that the U.S. could be learning from places that are doing it better or differently? Well, the U.S. is showing leadership in a lot of ways, and we also have slipped in a lot of ways. I mean, the previous administration took us out of the Paris Climate Accord for a while, and now we're back in and we're trying to show leadership and made significant pledges. But now we have to figure out how we can, in the domestic environment, the domestic political environment, get the things passed through Congress that need to be passed in order to make those contributions. So right now we've made a lot of promises And we have some legislation that will get us through part of those promises and some executive actions that will get us there. And then a lot of the private sector is moving in that direction. The utility companies in the United States, in response to the latest Supreme Court ruling about the power of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate power plants, many of the utility companies said, well, we're going to phase out coal anyway, regardless of what the Supreme Court says, because it's more economical for us to do that. So there's lots of factors in the, in the private sector, 
the fact that you and I are having this discussion and that it will be distributed, the fact that recent polls show that somewhere around 70% of Americans acknowledge that climate change is real and think something needs to be done about it, it's a whole fabric of social society that's working towards this. So it's not just something that we leave up to presidents and congresses and prime ministers. It's also something that we as communities can talk about and help bring about the changes that need to be made. We didn't reduce smoking in the United States just because Congress and the president said you ought to do it. They passed laws and funding to improve outreach and education and incentives. But it really was a matter of a cultural shift from the ground up that moved us in that direction. And I think that we're seeing a cultural shift now. Maybe our Congress doesn't represent that 70% of the people who say climate change is real and we need to be doing something about it now. But I think we will get there. Well, as you point out, these types of changes are bottom-up, grassroots. For those people out there looking for those ways in which they can make an impact, what would you suggest? Well, the biggest thing is to talk about it. You know, it's it's fine. Think about maybe your next car being an electric car. If you want to think about making sure you have LED lights, maybe look at your diet and think how you can uh, improve your diet, not only for your own health, but being socially conscious. Those are all good things to do, but it's not enough just to do them. And we're not going to solve these problems by just each one of us individually picking a little something like that to do, although I don't want to discourage anyone from that. But what's more important, once you do it, talk about it. Talk about it to a family member, to a coworker. That's the way we raise awareness. Thinking about a, an electric car, talk about the fact that it's actually kind of fun to drive and, oh, the maintenance costs are much lower. A lot of people don't realize that. And actually, there are charging stations around. And actually, it's pretty easy to install one in your home if you happen to be a homeowner or have your apartment building install them. And many more apartment buildings are doing that. So the most important thing we can do is to socialize or to talk about these issues. I know in this politically charged arena that we're so polarized, we're sort of afraid to bring up things that are political in nature and for fear that it might create an unpleasant argument. But there are ways of approaching it. If you were talking about electric car, you don't have to say, oh, I'm going to think about this electric car because of climate change. Maybe the discussion will eventually get there, but you might talk about it because, well, wow, I think these are really cool. And seeing how that conversation evolves, and then it might eventually evolve into something that's a little bit more politically charged. But there are lots of ways to find means of starting conversations with people whose politics you may or may not know, but on areas that you have common ground of things that are interest to both of you, that you can begin those sorts of discussions. So I really hope that my book will be read by people who probably disagree with a lot of my politics, but hopefully we'll find that they have some common ground in some of the values that I try to talk about, values that I was brought up with. I, I try to do a lot of storytelling in the book. It's, it's really not encyclopedic. It's not highly technical, even though the name science is in the, the title. I try to use personal experiences from my own life and from other friends and family to demonstrate how some of these things play out in our daily lives. And so I think we can address these issues without getting too political 
And that means we can communicate with friends and colleagues about these really important issues. Your book is very wide ranging. Certainly didn't have time to cover, I think, all the issues here. But just to close, if there's any final words you have regarding your book, Science for a Green New Deal. Well, the book goes through a lot of different topics. Like you said, we didn't cover them, but we talk about it. I talk about population. I talk about agriculture, regenerative agriculture. I do talk about climate change. I talk about a circular economy, how we need to make our production and use and reuse of plastics uh, more circular, for example. I also talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in academia, because that's an area that I've been working on. And as I said, all these issues of science and technology intersect with diversity and inclusion both in our homes and in our workplaces and in our schools. So that's another topic. At the end of the day, I hope it gives a sense of optimism that we have a lot of tools and we have a lot of knowledge. The alternative to having a hope and optimism is not very attractive. And so I think it's really important for us to look at the reasons that we do have hope and optimism. And I, I hope the readers will enjoy that opportunity. We were just talking with Professor Eric Davidson. He has penned the new book, Science for a Green New Deal, Connecting Climate, Economics, and Social Justice. Dr. Davidson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.